0: Alright, kids ages 3 to Pre-K, and can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, if the rest of you, if you could open your Bibles, if you've got one with you, to the book of Romans, we're still, we're in chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it's in your order of worship, the passage is in there. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table, I want you to take one of those, either right now or before you leave, that's our gift to you. However you can have the scripture in front of you though, it's good to do that. So, uh, I guess the first thing to say is, you came back, that's great. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, I'm glad you came back. Uh, that's encouraging. Uh, listen, I need to say this um, to some extent by way of an apology. Last week we were canceled because of weather, but the previous two weeks, uh, we, we've gone long. And uh, I just want to put that out there in front of everybody. That is not the new normal. We just had some great things to celebrate, uh, you know, both... both uh, an adult coming to Jesus for the first time and getting baptized, and then um, an, an infant baptism the the next week. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be welcoming a, a covenant child to the table for the first to the Lord's table for the first time. These are all great, joyous things. They're really awesome. Uh, that do tend to add to our normal worship rhythms and take up a little more time. It's not the new normal. I do just want to thank you for your patience as we celebrate those things. Okay. Uh, this week, as we come through Romans. Uh, we're we're doing so as we've done every week with the hope of having a foundation laid, right? That's why we're calling this foundations, uh, this this series. But um, we're, we're looking for that foundation to be either built, if you're not a Christian, you're just checking out Christianity, and this is maybe your first time in a church or first time in a church like this in a long time, we're hoping that, that foundation is going to be built. If if, you're, uh, if you are a Christian, you've been a part of Holy Cross, or you've, you've been around uh, Christianity for a long time. We're just hoping that that foundation is going to get strengthened. Uh, But this Sunday, today, we're experiencing a transition. Because you see, Paul, uh, who's the writer of this letter, has been spending, uh, he spent all of last chapter, he's going to spend all of this chapter, and all of the next chapter, in fact, building a case for a universal problem but the, but the thing about that is, is that he knows, as you know, that when we are faced with someone telling us we have a problem, we are master evaders, right? And we come up with very creative ways to go, oh, that's a very bad problem that has nothing to do with me, right? So we can hear all this talk, and if you've been here, you've heard it, talk about idolatry and immorality, and especially as religious folks, as most of us are, think, this doesn't really apply to me. Or worse, we think, yeah, get those sinners. If that's where you lean, then let me warn you, for the next several weeks, especially the next couple, Paul's about to turn the camera on you. So if you have your place in Romans chapter 2, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. I'm reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word to us. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking... Do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, as we come, I am am poignantly aware of uh, my own need, as, as Dan prayed earlier, apart from you, we can do nothing. And that means both hearing uh, what we're about to hear. We can't hear it well without you. I certainly can't say it without you. You made us for dependence, and so we joyfully now ask that you would give us that gift now, that to be able to depend on you, even during this time, whether it's in listening or whether it's in speaking. Lord, let Jesus and everything he has done come to the fore. Expose our need so that you might apply the balm of the gospel to it. Lord, we ask you to speak. For you alone hold the words of eternal life. So do so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, over the last couple of weeks, maybe even since the beginning of this series, which would be the last couple of weeks, uh, I've made the argument that everybody's worldview, and by worldview I mean uh, a set of presuppositions that govern the way in which we view the world, thus worldview, right? It's like a, it's like a pair of glasses. Uh, it brings things into focus. That everybody's worldview is made up of several questions. Remember those? It's uh, where we come from, uh, what's wrong, how does it get fixed, and where are we heading? Right? Those are the questions that are kind of brought up in when we talk about worldviews. And every different kind of worldview has those. And all of these questions are answered in this letter. Some of those are individual in nature. right? Like, what's wrong with me? And some of them are more uh, cosmic in scope. And that is because the work of God is both individual and cosmic. So follow me for a second. What I mean by that is this. Um, He deals with individuals like me and like you, engaging with our need, maybe our specific need. It's all stemming from our brokenness, but our specific thing. But he's also uh, dealing with the restoration of all things. And in these first three chapters, we're looking at the question, what is wrong? The gospel that Paul uh, preaches, that Paul lays out in this letter, is good news. But good news without bad news makes no sense. Right. So he takes three chapters to lay out the problem. And what he's been talking about is the universal problem of humanity. But here's the thing. Everything he has said so far, uh, and if you were here the last time we met, this will be especially true and you, you can think through that. Everything he has said so far can be chalked up as dealing with those immoral people over there. Right? Which we are very prone to do. But if this problem is universal, it is something that is true of immoral people and moral people. Religious people and those who aren't religious. It's true of everybody. And so today he begins the transition by looking at the issue of judgment. So there's an outline, as always, in your bulletin. We're going to look at this in two ways this morning. Uh, We're going to look at the reality of judgment, and then we're going to look at its basis. Okay? The reality of judgment is basis. If, if you're a note-taker, you can pull that out. If not, just leave it. Don't worry about it. Okay? So first off, let's look at the reality of judgment. Look down at verses 1 and 2. Paul starts us off with another therefore. And if you remember from last week, uh, we talked about this, that when you put therefore in there, this little Bible interpretation hint, that means that what follows is based on what came before. Okay? He's about to draw a conclusion from something that he has said previously. It's a signpost for us. In this case, what he's, what he's about to talk about, all of the things that he's about to talk about are based on the issue of idolatry. Okay? And if you're here the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that, that we talked about this issue of idolatry. Paul, Paul is establishing that the core of our problem as humans is that we have replaced God with something else to Worship. We've exchanged him for other things. Um, we were, what that means is this we were made to be dependent creatures, made to be dependent on God. And the Bible talks about that dependence with this word, worship. And that's a churchy word, right? So if you're not a, if you're not a church person, uh, worship sounds like something like, isn't that what we did when you're singing, or maybe that's what you do in a service? You no, know, worship means giving something ultimate worth in your life. So guess what? It's not a Christian thing. It's not a churchy thing. That's a human thing, because we all do that. There is something in your life that you think my life will be awesome if I have this. It may be money. It may be fame, you're in the valley. So it's probably not fame, right? <laughs> it may be um, it, it may be uh, having everyone uh, love you. It may be just calm. If you're a young parent, it's probably calm, right? And that's okay, uh, but. We all put something in that place, and we do that because we were made to. And so Paul's argument has been that all of us have this problem. Now, where this problem comes from, Paul's going to get to that in chapter 5. So sneak preview, that's coming in chapter 5. Uh, but right now, all that matters is that it is universal. Okay, you with me? So here's what Paul says. He says, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. Now, stop there, because before we move on, we need to clarify what judging is. I'm pretty sure that the the most often quoted and most often misused verse in the Bible, and it's always said in the King James, is judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Always in the King James. It's like the only verse everybody knows in the King James. Maybe John 3.16. This verse gets thrown at Christians all the time. What we assume is that judging... (laughs) This this is going to sound like a duh that judging means making a judgment, right? In other words, judging equals calling something wrong. And so this gets thrown at Christians all the time when they say something is sin that the Bible says is sin, right? And so if you're here this morning and you've used that verse and you've talked about that, let me ask you something. Is calling murder wrong judging? How about child abuse? Are you judgy for saying that child abuse is wrong? How about calling judgmentalism wrong? Is that being judgy? Listen, people make moral judgments all the time. Whether you're Christian or not, religious or not. We just do it. It's what we, it's what we do. I've said this before, but secularism isn't amoral. It's not without a morality. It just exchanged it, right? Traditional morality deals in um, sex and substances, right? Uh, and then, But uh, more progressive morality deals with economics and ecology. Like, those are the new, that's the new morality. It's not amoral, it just shifted. So we don't call it, at least culturally, we don't call it judging when we rail against the 1%, do we? You know, I think if we're honest, I think if we're honest, we use the concept of judgmentalism to keep people from challenging us. We just don't want them calling what we think is okay wrong. Right? It's all right. We can admit that. i probably do it too. So if that's not what judging is, if judging isn't simply calling something wrong, what is it? Well, uh, let, me, let me give you at least two things that it is. And it's probably more than this, but there's at least two things that, that when the Bible talks about judging, this is what it means. First, it means motive imputation. In other words, it's not just saying what someone did, but why they did it. I know why you did this. You did this because of blah, 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 blah. Oh, really? You know this? How do you know this? I don't know how I know this. I just, I just know it. right? So you say, you did X because you wanted to look good or you wanted to manage your reputation. So what, what that does is it claims to have knowledge that only God has. Right? It claims this kind of... Um, the, the knowledge of the narrator, so to speak, who can get into the head of the character and know what's going on. Judging claims to have that kind of knowledge. But secondly... It speaks from a position of holiness. In other words, you do X and I'm better than you because I don't do X. You see how that works? Judging isn't necessarily just calling something wrong. It's saying I'm better than you because I don't do that. Because more than likely, if I do that, I'm not saying that you're wrong in doing it. Right? That is judging. And like most issues in the Bible, judging is more of a heart issue than it is an activity. It's more of something that's going on in here than it is something that's going on out here. Got it? And Paul addresses this in verse 2, right? Paul In verse 2 where he says that God's judgment rightly falls. In the original, um, some of you may not know this, the, the New Testament was written in Greek originally, not in English. Um, and, and in the original, that literally says that it... That God's judgment is according to truth. And so, what that is addressing that, that, uh, that first point about what judging is. That God actually does have omniscience. He does actually know what's going on. What's in our hearts. What our motives are. He has comprehensive knowledge of everything. So his judgment is according to truth. And he addresses the second point in verse 1. When he says, you actually do what you're accusing Others for. So what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here. Is that we know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who have exchanged God for a lie. But do you, Mr. Judgy Religious Guy, think that you're exempt from exchanging God for a lie? Do you think you're exempt from idolatry? Saying, look, you're pointing the finger. And you may even be right. You're probably right. Right? In what you're saying. But don't you see that you do the exact same thing? Again, it's a universal problem. Now, as we get to that, let's look at our evasive maneuvers. Look down at verses 3 to 5. Paul asks a question. Do you think that you are going to escape judgment even though you practice the same things? And then he hits this great line. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Here's what he means. Do you know what it is? Do do you know what it is when we tend towards the most judgment? When we tend to be the most judgy of others, it's when something bad is going on in their life, right? When the wheels fall off, and we look at them and go, "Well, if you hadn't done this, this, and this, things might be going better for you, right? If you just acted responsibly like me, nothing would be going wrong." Right? This is what we do, okay? Maybe some of you don't believe me. Young moms, why is it that you are terrified of taking your little one to the store? Like any store. It's because you're afraid they're going to go ballistic, right? Like if you have a little baby or a little kid, and you get that cart full of stuff, and you pull up to the checkout line, and they go, Rah! and they're just going nuts. You're afraid of the judgy looks. You're afraid of the, the scowls. You're afraid of the, if you just disciplined him or if you just hugged her or if you were a better parent this wouldn't be happening right when things go bad and that's a you know not very bad but when things go bad that's when we start to be judgy cuz you see we look at all the stuff that Paul talked about last time all that all that the ways in which he described our rebellion against god we see the consequences of it in the lives of people and we see god's judgment Sometimes that judgment is simply letting us go our own way. But Paul is also saying right here, he's saying, the fact that you don't see that stuff in your life isn't a sign that you're awesome. It's a sign that God is being kind and patient with you. And see, Paul's argument is that that kind of kindness is supposed to lead us to repentance. In other words, it's supposed to lead us back to him in thankfulness. It's supposed to lead us to say, I know what I deserve, and you haven't given it. I know what I'm supposed to get, but you haven't given me what I'm supposed to get. What kind of grace is this? How gracious is God with me? Instead, we credit ourselves. How awesome am I? I've done so many good things. We trust ourselves. And Paul says that trusting yourself is storing up for you wrath on the day of wrath. Now, really quick on that, because that's... How many times are you going to say wrath in one sentence? But Paul seems to say it a lot. Uh, Last last time I said that God's judgment, which Paul was talking about at the end of chapter 1, wasn't retributive. You remember, remember me saying that? What that meant was that God, in what Paul was talking about, isn't looking at this immorality and going, I'm going to get you. Instead, what he's saying is, I'm going to let you go let you go the way you want to go. And that in and of itself is God's judgment. In other words, that, that what we saw was a sign of God's judgment, not the cause of it. That's at the end of chapter 1. But what was talked about here is retributive. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is coming a day of judgment. Here, Paul calls it the day of wrath, where God will visit his righteous judgment on our betrayal of him. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Rick, isn't that somehow contradictory to what you said last week, that God just lets us go our own way? Uh, I'm glad you asked. So good when you all ask the questions that I'm about to cover next. Basically, Basically, here's how this works. The Bible is likewise clear that even on that day of retribution, that what we would rather have on that day is the retribution than God. It's that terrifying thing where, where we are not... The, the, the images that we get from Dante and from um, Ghost. You remember Ghost, right? Bad dude gets killed and the shadow creature like, Ah, grabbing him and he's like, ah, no, he's clawing at the floor. That is not the Bible's de- description of what judgment is like. The Bible's description of what judgment is like is that we march there. Left to our own devices, we march there with our fist in the air and a certain finger extended pointing in the opposite direction. We do not go in unwillingly. That's the terrifying thing of God's judgment is that it's actually giving us what we want even in that. We would rather have that than God. By our nature, we would rather have that than repent. Now, let me take a second to go a little further with us on this point uh, to judge our judgment. Here's where this is hard for the majority of us. And I say the majority because most of us here are churchgoers, right? We're religious folks. For us, it is very hard to see when Paul says, you practice the same, the very same things, right? It's very hard for us to see that. Because especially if you were here last time, you were like, that talked about this incredibly incredible brokenness. How is it, Rick, that I actually do the same things as that? I don't do the same things as that. That's not where I struggle. I mean, we keep our noses clean, right? how is it that we practice the same thing? And look, even if you're not a religious person, the question applies to you. Think with me about what you have indignation about. What is it that gets you, like, oh, I'm getting fiery about this. Paul's saying you practice the same thing. But how? It's namely this, and it's come up the last few weeks consistently. Behaviors are symptoms of what the problem is. Behaviors aren't the problem. Behaviors are also the problem. But they are the symptom of what the problem is. The problem is seeking independence from God. And some of us do that with our immorality. Because we don't care what people think of us. And even if we do, we're not really sure we could change anyway. So what's the point in trying? We don't have the ability to put up a front. But others of us... ha. ha, ha. And my guess is, as most of us in this room... Others of us use morality to be independent from God. We use all of our type A-ness, right? That type A person that's like, all of you. Like, I I love you. This is most of the people in this room. We use that in us to put up a front of having it together. We We don't need God because what we really want, looking good before other people, we can do on our own. So no, you may not have issues with sex or substances, but does does that mean you're not using more culturally acceptable behaviors to fill the same need apart from God? Listen to me. Listen to me. Workaholism is just as addictive as any other substance. It's only it only the, the only difference is that it gives you cultural benefit. Right? We applaud workaholics. They're driven. What we never point out is that their unwillingness to rest shows a blasphemous idolatry. I must keep going because I must be God. It is just as sinful as any other addiction. It just gives us societal benefits. The issue is the heart. So let me ask you some questions. What is it that you point to as really bad? What issues are, like, hard to have compassion towards? And when I say that, please don't run to, like, genocide, right? I mean, that's an easy one. I know that. Got that. But, but what, what you see around you, what you come across in your day-to-day, is it how somebody votes? Or is it the misuse of their sexuality? And you're like, that's just terrible. Is it being intolerant? Or is it being Greedy. Now the harder question, that thing that gets you so fired up, is it possible that that thing that gets you fired up reminds you of something in you? That maybe that's why it gets you so fired up? In other words, like you, maybe you get fired up at, at, uh, at the misuse of sexuality. Could it be possible that you long to do that yourself? But you're just too afraid to do it? Do you rail against the rich, calling them greedy because you really want what they have and you resent them for having it? In what you judge others for, do you do the same? So Paul's asking. Second question in this, though, is this. What are those issues that you don't think God actually cares that much about? I mean, he's really big on these ones over here, but these, not so much. Like I mentioned before, is, is it the inability to rest? Maybe you're like, yeah, I mean, God's really down on people who are strung out in a ditch. But me? I mean, I can't rest. But what's the big deal? You don't see it the way God does. The blasphemous God complex. Is it maybe your lack of compassion on those who do struggle? You're like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I have a hard time being compassionate. But at least I'm not like those people. I mean, God really is hard on those folks. Or maybe it's those little lies you tell to improve your image. Those little social media posts. How many filters did you have to get through on your Instagram feed to make that picture look like what well, you wanted it to? Tell everybody like, that this is, this is the real me. Have you ever thought about how convenient it is that God seems to only care about the things you care about? That's really convenient. those questions are kind of pinging around in your head, let's, let's move on to the basis of judgment. okay? Because that's the reality. Let's look at its basis. Paul has just said that all of us are in the same boat. You may lean moral, you may lean immoral. You may lean religious or lean irreligious. Uh, you may have been a Christian since long before you can remember, or you've never been in a church before. And Paul says we all have the same issue. We're all in the same place. We're all in the same boat. And then he said that there's this day of wrath coming, this final judgment. Now let's look at the basis of that judgment. Look down at verses 6 to 7. Here's the beginning. Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. Now, you've been a Christian for a while. This is going to sound a little weird to you coming from Paul. Isn't this the champion of justification by faith? If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. We'll get to it in a second. Yes, it is. He is the champion of that. Stick with me, because this is an incredibly important teaching. This image that Paul is envisioning is that of a courtroom, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you've kept up with the Larry Nasser trial, right? I have watched it, watched his sentencing, um, watched a video of his sentencing. Uh, it was heartbreaking um, and phew, terrible. Strangely satisfying, if I'm being honest with you. Larry Nasser, if you're not aware, is the physician, sports physician, who's convicted of being, at least with, just with what has become forward, not all the potentials that haven't, with being the worst serial child sexual abuser in the history of the world. What I loved about this sentencing was that the judge dispensed with the pretense of being unmoved by what this man did. She wasn't a victim, but she was, she was even saying she was happy to judge the horrendous acts of this man. See, in Scripture, God is both the wronged party, the one who's wronged, and and the judge. He has both comprehensive knowledge and a vested interest. And this means that he can be fair without being disinterested. So when it talks about God rendering to each to what he has done we 're not talking about um, we 're both not talking about this raging person who has a bruised ego and goes off of the handle, nor are we talking about someone who 's cold and just dis- disinterested and so on the one hand he places those paul places those who through patience in well doing it 's an interesting phrase are continually seeking glory, honor, and immortality okay what does this mean basically Basically, this, this kind of phraseology is what Jesus meant when he summed up the law. To love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as you do yourself. You're like, I don't really love myself very much. Well, in fact, you, you kind of do. What I mean by that is you still take care of yourself. All right. You do what you think is going to make you flourish. That's what what Jesus was talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. But the important word here is continually. See, in the original, when it talks about seeking, it means continually seeking. All the time doing it. All the time. uh, Not at one point. Not on your best day. Not even more often than not. All the time. Through patience and well-doing, seeking glory, honor, and immortality. To that person... God will give eternal life. That is what it is to not betray God. But let's keep reading. Verse 8 through 11. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be uh, wrath and fury. Okay, listen. In uh, chapter 1, verse 18, if you were here, you you might remember this. I'm not expecting you to. Uh, Paul talks about this state. You remember that? That we are in a state called unrighteousness. It's a being. It's a way that we are. And all of us are there. This is the same thing he's talking about here. Self-seeking. In other words, looking out for number one. Constantly looking out for yourself. Not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness. This is the dichotomy that Paul's laying out. Obeying unrighteousness simply means believing, acting out of the lie, the great lie. That that Satan told way back in the day that God can't be trusted, that we have to um, look out for ourselves, that he's just holding us back. That we can be like him. He's not worthy of our trust. In other words, obeying unrighteousness means obeying the basis for every sin. For those who would have that on their ledger, Paul says, there will be a day of wrath and fury. And look, I know that's hard for us. I know we hear that and and we, we have weird images that pop into our heads. But you cannot read the New Testament. You can't read the words of Jesus without understanding a reality of this thing we call hell. He talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. But Paul's point in these verses is this. There is no favoritism with God. He shows that in verses 9 to 11. In the Jewish worldview, there are two kinds of people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. Or in Paul's case here, Jews and Greeks. Two kinds of people. That's it. One group in the Jewish worldview, God likes. And he overlooks their issues because they know stuff. Or because of who their great, 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 great grandpappy was. The other group... He doesn't like. And he doesn't look over anything. And Paul says, no, 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 no! you don't get it. We're all alike. We're all liable to the same standard of judgment. Now, this is hard to hear, I think, especially because it sounds so weird to those of us who have been in church for a while, so why don't I make it even weirder? The Bible, listen to me, the Bible is very clear. Salvation is always by works. The question is, whose works? Salvation is always by works. The question is, whose works? The issue is faithfulness to God's covenant. And faithfulness to the covenant is not by assent. It's not by knowledge. It's not by a series of propositions. And that's what Paul is trying to show us here. If you're a churchgoer, maybe maybe you have been your whole life. Can I tell you something? God is not impressed by your church attendance. Nor does he overlook your junk because of it. Salvation is always by works. The question is whose works. And the New Testament answers that question with the name Jesus. You see, you and I look at that standard, and we should be rightly nervous. Who can stand under that? Who can say that continually, throughout their entire life, they have always sought, through patience and well-doing, to seek glory, meaning not ours, but God's, to, to, to seek Uh, all of these great things who can say I have continually rejected my own self-seeking any takers if so can I ask your mama because my guess is if you can't remember being self-seeking she can't right who can say I have continually loved God with all my heart who can say that no one If you and I stand before God with only what we've done, only what we've accomplished on our own, then we are lost. Because our problem is trying to be on our own. It's trying to be independent. The glory of the Christian gospel is not just that Jesus died for us. If that was it, it would be really good. Jesus died. He covered my sin. Isn't this awesome? It's also that Jesus lived for us. That he fulfilled God's covenant, that he did all that was required, that he was the one who, through patience and well doing, continually sought glory and honor and immortality. He lived perfectly before God, which we cannot do, whether you are religious or not, whether we're born into a Christian family or not, whether we know lots of theology or not. Jesus came to be our substitute. To die in place for what we've done, which is awesome. But to also live in place of us. He bore the day of wrath and fury for you and me, but also attained eternal life. You can't do it. I can't do it. And God isn't asking us to. In Jesus, God came to do it in our place. So here's what's really great. Because most of us in this room are religious folks. So listen to me. This is what's really great for us. As religious people. As people who tend to lean towards trusting in our own goodness, in our own rightness, in our own image. Here's what's great. If the basis of our acceptance of God, by God is on what Jesus did, it's on the life that he lived, the death that he died, then it is secured for you. When you are doing well, living in a way that honors God by faith, then your acceptance is secure. In Jesus. And when you're struggling. When you're barely clinging to the gospel with your fingernails. When darkness covers you and you wonder if anyone, let alone God, could love you. Your acceptance is secure. In Jesus. You cannot add... Let me make sure we get this. You cannot add anything... To the perfection of Jesus. And you cannot out-sin his cross. You cannot add anything to the perfection of Jesus. I don't care how good you are. Some of y'all are way better than me. Some of y'all, like, I know some of you, like, your life is as straight an arrow as it could be. You cannot add anything to the perfection of Jesus. And you cannot, cannot out-sin his cross. There is no favoritism with God, friends. He is perfectly just. So that when we are united to Christ, that justice is met because Jesus bore it. And his mercy is also accomplished. That is why the gospel is good news. It frees us to have compassion on the struggling. It frees us to admit our own inconsistencies. You're right, Rick. I think God likes what I like and doesn't like what I don't like either. It, it frees us to do that because we see our need and we see it met in Jesus. Would you pray with me? You alone, O oh God, are holy and righteous and just and true. You alone, O oh God, have comprehensive knowledge of us and our motives. You alone, O oh God, judge rightly. And so, Lord, even now, as we move into our confession of sin here in a few minutes, I pray that you would give us repentance over our own judgmentalism. Whether we are Christians or not. Because when we're not, boy, can we judge those judgy people. But, Lord, you are also just and right and holy and true, and in Jesus you have united us to that. So Lord, I I pray right now for my friends here who are struggling and they're struggling not just in in the fact that they, they, they keep finding themselves in the same place in regards to sin but they're also struggling to believe that Jesus is enough for them. I pray, Lord, that you would inflame their hearts to see that Christ is enough. That his perfection is enough. That his this paying the penalty for sin is enough. And for those of us here who have never trusted in him, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see our need, but also to see the great provision that is laid out for us in Jesus. pray you do this for your glory's sake, for our good. Would you receive all the glory, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.